Here's an unpopular opinion for you. C.S. Lewis is not actually that great. It's Ikea factory theology. It's mass produced in a think tank factory. It's not made very well. And magically, there's always something for everyone. Reading C.S. Lewis is not a substitute for intellectual material. Somehow a lot of Presbyterians are really into him, and theonomic reconstructionists in particular. I really don't know why it does not help them at all, but that's the reality of the situation. The irony is that I don't think they actually read the stuff that would have put a hole in what they're trying to sell as far as reconstructionism goes. There's a real gem of a quote that C.S. Lewis wrote in the screw tape letters that I'm going to read to you now. Be sure the patient remains completely fixed on politics, arguments, political gossip, and obsessing on the faults of people they have never met serves as an excellent distraction from advancing in personal virtue, character, and the things the patient can control. Mm. Make sure to keep the patient in a constant state of angst, frustration, and general disdain toward the rest of the human race in order to avoid any kind of charity or inner peace from further developing. Ensure the patient continues to believe that the problem is out there, in the broken system rather than recognizing there is a problem with himself. The Christian is supposed to fight tyranny in the outside world through their zeal of the local church. For the Reconstructionist, the church is kind of like an appendage of government. They won't say that. They'll say either that there's equal harmony between the way that the church and the government are supposed to work hand in hand, the church has an advisory board, the government's with the power of the sword, but that's not actually how they live out their everyday Monday morning lifestyle. Again, I'm not saying don't have a political opinion or don't get involved as opportunity arises, especially because in today's day and age, everything is political. Like things that were never supposed to be a political issue are now political. Freaking genitalia is now political. So in a sense, everything theological is political. Okay, fine. But isn't political involvement or political cleaning up act exactly what Jesus said he wasn't here for? In a sense, everything Jesus did was political, had a political component because everything the government does, all different laws that are on the books have a moral component to them. It had to be derived from someplace. Okay. But that's about as helpful as in my first podcast when I said that everybody's a theonomist because everybody believes that God has something to say in scripture that we're supposed to adhere to. It's an overgeneralization of the term. It doesn't actually mean anything. So if we're going to define political involvement, let's define it this way. Being involved in bettering the earthly institution of government and culture by extension. Ergo, by that definition, Jesus was not actually political. He did not come to influence culture through Caesar's court or Herod's throne, whatever. One counter argument that recons have against this is that, well, John the Baptist was political. He rebuked Herod for marrying the sister of the whatever. And Jesus didn't rebuke John. So now we need to all be politically involved to that extent. By saying that, you have to say that you would rather follow John over Jesus if the two ever said things that didn't line up. I don't think they said things that didn't line up. But if someone comes to you and says, Jesus did X, Y, and Z, 
and then you say, but so-and-so did A, B, and C, therefore we're going to do A, B, and C, you've essentially said, if Jesus did something other than this guy over here, I'm going to follow this guy over here over Jesus. That is the argument that you're saying. So that's problem number one. So then the second thing, John the Baptist did not conjure up nearly as much hatred as Jesus did. Yes, John the Baptist was beheaded and Jesus was killed as well. So like, well, they both killed. So how can you say that? No, but did you not like read any of the Bible? John the Baptist didn't have anywhere near the angst and the conniving behind what they were trying to do to Jesus for preaching the word of God. Jesus did way fewer blatantly politically controversial things than John ever did. Everything Jesus did was theologically controversial. And it got people so much angrier than they were at John. There were plenty of zealots in Jesus' day. That was half the reason why the disciples were so confused about what the heck Jesus is going to do. You're going to call fire down from heaven and burn these guys up kind of stuff. Christ came preaching a completely different message than let's clean up this earthly institution. No other religion teaches devotion out of love. No other religion teaches that the God or the object of your worship chooses to love you apart from anything you do. Zero. Nada. It's not a thing. I'm convinced recons would have crucified Jesus if they were alive back then. Why? Because Jesus cared far more about human beings than recons will ever be able to understand. Oh, but we care about people. We give them the truth of the gospel. And that's, you know, taking into consideration their eternal state. They would have chided Jesus. This is the, this is real. They would have chided Jesus if they saw that he didn't rebuke the woman at the well when he learned that she was in a fornicating relationship and most likely divorced four times. No, he just said, oh, I know this happened. He's like, oh yeah, you, you are living with somebody now and you were married four times before. Christ did not make a commentary about that. Might there have been a time for it? Perhaps, but he didn't. That's not what the book records for a reason. God didn't just throw together the word of God willy-nilly because he just felt like it was an interesting story. There's a point to it. They would have tried to Jesus for not breaking down the proper percentages of what you owe Caesar versus God. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. But how much? How much is it? Christ left it up to conscience. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it was. They probably would have chided him for keeping silent when he was on trial. Because you have to take every opportunity. You have an open audience. You have an ear. Probably would have chided him for pretty much all of Matthew 5. Blessed are the meek. Not that they're proud per se, but I would say they are. But blessed are those who are not a bunch of loud mouths. You know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I've often heard that. It'd be the blessed are they that hunger and thirst after seeing equity and justice in the world. That's not actually what the Greek means or says. And it's funny because recons are really good with like Strong's lexicon or whatever, like Greek and Hebrew study and yada yada when, it, when it's convenient for what they're trying to push. But if you read that, it's actually talking about um, equity of character. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst after a good character, which would entail blessed are those who pursue a more perfect union between yourself and the father. They'd probably be mad at 
when Jesus said, you should turn the other cheek because that's a sign of weakness. You don't let people trample all over you. But Christ says, don't the publicans already do that if you just love your brother and hate your enemy? And that's, that's basic stuff. You don't need me to give you an entirely package, I don't want to say new, Christian religion if it's literally about love your friends and hate your enemies. And it says after that, so, okay, love your enemies. Be therefore perfect as I am perfect. It's not be therefore, like, come to perfection. It's be therefore made to the fullness of your character, complete mature growth unto. Ergo, you don't actually have to get it all right, but it's about your growth and understanding needs to be consistent. Truth seasoned with salt, because you don't know where the person that you're preaching is at. They may not be at the point you want them to be. Oh, but he turned over the money changers. A, that wasn't in government, it was in the church. B, you do realize that he didn't just see them and go, ah, I gotta turn the money changers over right now because reflex is in my mood. No, he actually saw them the day before. If you look a couple verses up, he saw them the day before and looked around and took stock and be like, all right, what am I gonna do here? What are they gonna do here? I'll be back. They didn't just fly off the handle. C. It also wasn't a chapter about turning over money changers. That was actually more or less a footnote in the bigger grand scheme of things, which was about the fig tree, among other things. This was a chapter about lack of fruit. People who are not at the point theologically that are claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ are labeled enemies and people move on. They'd rather just force the law and I don't mean Christ's law, I mean like a law, like a government law, onto everyone to do the right thing. It's easier to strip the relationship aspect away from people and deal through a channel rather than face-to-face. -face. I don't think recons actually know what it means when the Bible says we loved him because he first loved us. I think most of them think that it means we love him based on the fact that he loved us before we loved him. That's actually most likely not what it means. What it probably means and what I believe it means is we love him because the first thing he ever did toward us was show us love before anything else, before the correction, before the chastisement, before he illuminated our minds to perfect doctrine. The thief on the cross didn't know a damn thing. He knew that Christ was on his left side or right side and Christ said, you can be with me. He didn't know about the ins and outs of justification. He didn't know the ins and outs about anything that recons say are paramount. He didn't know about a democracy versus a republic. He didn't know about Trump. Grace is not a right, it's a gift. And yes, everybody says that. But recons act like it's a right. Why do I say that? Because of how they demonize people who haven't figured it out yet. Do you recall the demon that the disciples could not cast out? Christ said it was due to their lack of faith. 
So people usually think, oh, because they had such little faith, they didn't really believe they could do it. Or like, oh, they didn't believe that, you know, God was really strong enough to work through them. But that's not what it was. Because the next verse is about the mustard seed, like the teensiest, teensiest speck of faith that you could have is enough. So it couldn't have been about quantity of faith. Perhaps it was about quality of faith. And it's like, oh, well, maybe because there was some doubt involved. No, the kind of faith that perseveres and grows and continues even when it starts out small, even when it started out a simpleton, someone who didn't understand all the theological points. And what was the only way that the demon could be cast out? Through political involvement. No. Through cultural activism. No. Through prayer and fasting, the Bible says. So why couldn't the disciples cast the demon out? I think it's because they thought they'd arrived. They thought that they were the definition of complete faith because they were doing all the things. They were on the battlefield for Jesus. They were racking it in. They got this. But how was their prayer life? How was their self-sacrificing unto others? Another one, love not in word, but in deed and truth. Yeah, Recons would say like, oh yeah, we aren't loving just in word. We're not just saying we love them. We're, we're doing something. We're giving them the gospel. Not seasoned with salt upon fertile ground, more like throwing the seeds on top of the stony ground and hitting it with a sledgehammer. But yeah, we're loving them. No, they don't get it. They don't get it. This isn't about being doers of the word, not hearers stuff. This isn't about the thing about like, okay, don't just say you love someone, show them. This is not that verse. I'll tell you why. The word word in the Greek, love not in word, but in deed and truth, is um, G3056 if you do strongs. Something said, including the thought, by implication a topic, subject of discourse, also reasoning, the mental faculty or motive, by extension, a computation, specifically the divine expression, i.e. Christ, embodying what someone has said. It's most often translated as word in reference to something Jesus actually said or a doctrine being taught. Once, funny enough, it is translated as cause in the verse, save for the cause of fornication, like when he's talking about when you can divorce someone, which can be implied that you're putting her away due to the word of God and what it says. Ergo, let us not love in simply telling someone the truths of the Bible. Let's love them by giving them the cloak when they're cold instead of telling them to be warm and fed. Let's go with them twain miles instead of one mile. I don't know. That makes sense to me. Otherwise, why would, let us not love in word. It would, it, it's not like, let us not love in words. That's not what it says. It's not a Greek word that's talking about utterance. Like the word utterances is not here. Like, that's not the word. It's not just spoken particles. Let me tell you a story. When COVID happened, there were a lot of people who were on all kinds of sides of the aisle, politically, theologically, about what to do. And the recons, amongst many other conservatives, but, you know, um, generally were of the opinion that we're not going to do any masks, we're not going to follow any mandates if we could help it. There was a sect who believed that wearing a mask was the equivalent to breaking the Ninth Commandment. Because, apparently, in their twisted logic, and I will say it's twisted, because you are falsely advertising that you trust the government. So therefore you're, you're lying. I don't, I don't get it. It was a stretch, a big stretch. Okay, there's that. 
So with that sentiment in mind came this newspaper article from a recon talking about that amongst other things, namely that it was dehumanizing to wear a mask because it's covering the image bearers of Christ and all this high and lofty terminology to justify it. I didn't wear a mask, if I could help it, certainly. But that's not the point of this. The point was that they were getting to their conclusion by all kinds of cockamamie means. So under a pseudo name, pseudonym, pseudonyme, a fake name, I wrote back because this recon knew me and I wasn't getting involved, but I was getting involved. And I pretended to be someone else in order to be the silence do good of the times. And I said my piece about how I thought that the Ninth Commandment thing was hogwash, not something that made any sense to the actual argument or the stuff at hand. And I also said something like, we do cover our faces for other things in life. For example, firefighters wear fire masks. There are gas masks for certain reasons in military. Doctors and nurses wear masks. And we're okay with that, I think. If it's about the mask covering your face, dehumanizing you, then all of them are in trouble as well. So you have to be consistent, was my argument. This was apart from whether or not COVID was worth a mask. It was just the argument made no sense. So I actually was expecting an intelligent response in the paper. This is all letters to the editor stuff. But no. Little Birdie told me that when my article came out, the person who wrote the actual original article was so excited that someone wrote back and he said, and I quote, Someone got so pissed off and he cut it out, the article, and planned to frame it as a reminder of something. Was the goal to change anyone's minds or was it to just piss people off? I know the answer to the question. But that's, that's, that's the whole problem here. Let us not love in word, but in deed and in truth. You gave me the word and you're happy about what? That you made an enemy? Like, I know who I was. You didn't really make an enemy, but like, you're cutting it out to frame it. Why wouldn't your first response be, I have to straighten this out. She's got it all wrong. Let me write back. It would have even been better if like, Oh, I've got someone hooked. Let me go to war with them again. Like, I feel like that would have even been better. But it wasn't even that. It was the glee of just ticking someone off. Are you really excited about the world hating you? Like, that wasn't supposed to be an exciting talking point. That wasn't supposed to be something you strove for. It was supposed to be, according to the Lord, a sad reality that we have to deal with. You know, fret not when the world hate you. I forget the terminology. I'm sorry. Because normal people would be concerned about the world hating them. Like the vast majority of people who follow God, follow the Lord Jesus Christ, are going to be distraught when the world hates them for doing the right thing, for saying the right thing. 
So Christ is addressing that. But you got these cockamamie lunatics who are doing the happy dance. Like, it's an entire posture. When you, let's break it down again. You're growing up in this environment, you, me, growing up in this environment where you're supposed to look forward to having enemies. It's kind of hard to make friends. A, because you're kind of looking for stuff. B, it's just as good to have an enemy. So it's not like you're fighting, like, too hard for it. You almost expect it to happen. You expect your relationship life to be a revolving door. Because at some point, someone's going to do something that isn't in the books. It's not in the cards. And that's going to be your opportunity to shine. I If it doesn't make sense... Welcome to the club. I told my mother growing up, I didn't like reading the Psalms. I preferred Proverbs. There's nothing wrong with having your preference of book. Like, you know, not like preference, but like people have their favorite book. But I think there's a problem with saying I don't like reading that. I prefer that. And this is why. Because the Psalms are too emotional. Proverbs gives me the blueprint, the the checklist that I can just check off and do what I'm supposed to do to please God. And that's a lot easier for my brain to handle. I feel like a normal upbringing would have heard that and been like, no, there's something wrong with the way that you view God. But I didn't grow up in a normal environment. I grew up in an environment where what I said was met with another like code. Well, you have to remember that the Psalms and the Proverbs work together because the entirety of the Bible works in harmony with each other. So you have to make sure you give equal ground to both, whether you feel like it or not, deny your emotions. It should probably have resulted in, let's talk about your walk with Christ. But no. I wasn't met with, loving God isn't about keeping all the rules. I wasn't met with, Proverbs actually isn't just a checklist. I wasn't met with, The Psalms isn't actually just a bunch of depressed king's emotions. None of that. None of that. (laughs) I think I took what I had absorbed growing up. You know, on my understanding of what relationship with God is, I took it to its logical conclusion a lot of times. And world ain't ready for that kind of thing. Somehow it just didn't sound right when I said it that way. Because it wasn't right. But nobody could put their finger on it because they were doing the same thing. There was no biblical response, nothing biblical given to me to chew on about what relationship with God is supposed to look like. And I think it's because they had no idea. Nothing like why we obey at all because we want to strive for unity with Christ and have a a better understanding of who he is and sanctification process. None of that. None of that. Nothing about being free to experience his world without shame because they didn't know. I'm going to end with this quote by a book called Dreams Small by Seth Lewis, The Secret Power of the Ordinary Christian Life. But to to, to prep it real quick, recons act like the world hasn't been won. It hasn't been overcome by Christ. It's up to us. So like the whole tread down serpents and scorpions thing, which they quote ad nauseum, 
they're going to drag down all the philosophies and ideologies of the wicked, which is what Serpents and Scorpions does mean. And they're going to go on about how they can't wait to trample people down with their sophist eloquence and their political swordsmanship. But they miss the very next verse. It says this. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Remember when Mercy Me's I Can Only Imagine came out? I do. It's somebody who is just dreaming about the day that the Lord will return and what might he do? Will he be in a state of awe? Will he be in a state of worship? Will he be in a state of just ecstasy that he can't help but dance? You can only imagine what it might be like because he can't wait. Mama told me. Yeah, it's all good and all, but I, I kind of wish they would just have finished the whole loop and just said something like, but, you know, until that day comes, we're going to do the work we have to do here. Ergo, I don't think that heaven is all that. It's just a peripheral thing that some people need to hold on to in order to justify the work they have to do. And I was like, yeah, you know, his theology, the fact that he wants heaven so badly and he's not even willing to put in the work is so terrible. Like, I bought it. Now, I'm not saying it was the most amazing song out there. I mean, like, CCM. But really? Come on, how low? You're supposed to rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And that's not even all of it. Notwithstanding, rejoice because your names are in heaven and not the fact that you can tread serpents and scorpions. But then there's another verse after that. Go figure. There's verses that build upon verses. It says in that hour, narration here, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. You've hid these things, ergo... The fact that we should be rejoicing in heaven and not over the fact that we can just cut someone a new one. You've hid those things from the wise and prudent. Oh, you mean like maybe the theologically astounding recons? Like they don't get that stuff. You've revealed them unto babes. You mean like, oh, I don't know, the, the thieves on the crosses? This book called Dream Small has a quote that I'm going to end with for this episode. This is how it goes. What Adam and Eve really wanted was to be God. Ever since that day, the human race has carried on in a stubborn refusal to be content with our privileged place in God's universe and the responsibilities he had entrusted us. God literally gave us the world, but we want his throne. In other words, the way that I interpret that and in its context in the book, it isn't cool that God through Christ already did the work, already gave us the world for our enjoyment. They want the power to wield judgment for themselves. And if you keep trying to wield that sort of judgment because you're not content with your lot in the universe, you are going to miss out at best what God intends for the relationship between the two of you. And at worst, you're just going to spread lies about your God. Recon's a big lie. 
Love is not big enough. Love is not good enough. The gospel's not good enough. Love is weak. Showing emotion, showing enjoyment is weak. When I was 14, 15, I really got into a band. I didn't think I should like the band. I didn't think that it was objectively beautiful, but I happened to like it. And so I was a little bit embarrassed, a little ashamed, and it wasn't a secret that I liked them, but to the extent that I did to this day, I did not share that. I would hide in my room with the door locked, listening to the CD player on its lowest volume setting, Indian style on the floor with my ear to the speaker so I could absorb it in my heart in secret and enjoy every minute of it without disturbance and without anyone knowing that I might be doing something wrong. In the same vein, I remember asking my mom one day, how do you like music? Mom's like, what do you mean? Then how do you get into liking music? Because, and this is kind of on the heels of it, because I'm like, well, I only like one band and maybe, you know, I shouldn't like one band because, you know, maybe I'm making an idol of them because I couldn't differentiate the difference because everything's in extremes. So I need to expand my enjoyment. So I said, how do you figure it out? Because I didn't know how I did it the first time. I didn't know how I ended up liking this band. It just was on the radio and I heard it and you know, it was just there. Like I wasn't searching for it. It's just that whatever it was, I had a bend toward. And my mom says, people listen to the radio. Like she told me literally that people listen to the radio and they hear a song they like. And if they like that song, they go look up the artist and see other songs that they do. Like literally telling me the correct stuff. And I said, well, what do you, how do you know if you like it? Like, how do you do that? Because I didn't know and I was trying to break down the fact that I liked this band to a formula. Because everything's a formula. It's not like anyone kept me from liking anything or pursuing enjoyment for its own sake. Except that the ideologies kept me in these invisible chains. I couldn't figure out how... I could even have an opinion about aesthetics. So I tried, took my mom's advice, sat in my room with the radio, with my notepad, like I'm in church. I wasn't listening to the music though. I was listening primarily to the lyrics and trying to justify me liking the music through the lyrics that I put some sort of a deconstructionist spin on to see like, oh, well, that could be kind of Christianized. I'm like, oh, I'm listening to the lyrics. I'm like, I could, I could, I could probably put a spin on that and justify myself listening to it. How exhausting. And I'm listening to all this. I never found another band I liked to the extent that I liked the band that I talked to about. I kind of forgot about them for a bit. And then I remembered them because of a tour and whatnot. And I went to see them. And I'm like realizing this was the first thing that I liked outside of somebody telling me it was okay to like it. Everything that I am today, somehow, like, okay, in some capacity, everybody likes what they like because they're products of their environment. You know, your parents share with you what they like and whatever, you know. But at the same time, 
there was no fostering of of just enjoying the world that the Lord has given us for its own sake. And I didn't know how to even broach the subject. And when it sort of like happenstance happened to me with this band, I was kind of shaken from my so-called foundation of being a moral person. I wasn't supposed to not have a reason for liking something that wasn't in the cards. And I couldn't explain it. And because I couldn't explain it, I tried to hide it, totally suppressed it for years. And then, you know, recently when I rediscovered them, more or less, I really got a chance to put two and two together with how much they really meant to me because they were like the thread that pulled me out of all the nonsense that recon is about. There's no peace here. You can say whatever you want out of the sides of your mouth from the pulpit, but it ain't happening in real life. They often say what your parents do in moderation, your children will do in excess. And so that's why I think that slowly the recons have gotten worse. Because originally with the Bonson generation, they were just like, hey, you can't be completely ignorant of what's going on around you. Then you've got my generation and friends. And my parents' generation are like, how do you not know how to like music? And I'm not ruling out that I may be just a unique weirdo. But at the same time, I've talked to other people who are like, yeah, I don't really, yeah, I don't know. I'm not really passionate about much um, other than, you know, what somebody told me to be passionate about, like on the internet or, you know, getting into these cyberspace wars or, or whatever, because I have to wield that judgment. The world being overcome by Christ is really just an anathema concept to them. I feel like if any of you are like actually listening to what I'm saying, you're going to think like, but didn't she just say they think this and now she's saying they think this? Like, yeah, at the same time they do. And it's because I'm trying to conceptualize a lot of things that have been thrown at me from different angles. Some things have been said, some things have been insinuated, some things have been alluded to, some things have been shown in action, some things have been shown in how interactions happen with other believers or non-believers like it's absorption and it, and it is now a concept that is a whole based on a bunch of little pieces some of the pieces don't actually match but it's it's a web of of destruction knowing who christ is is what's paramount what can you even add to that Jesus did far fewer blatantly, far less blatantly politically controversial things. It's not. A th We're supposed to fight tyranny in 